was 30 plus years ago that I realized that I and my peers in the venture business in the U.S. and the entrepreneurs we were backing in information technology were all dancing on a platform that had been constructed over a generation from the end of World War II by the federal government. Hi, I'm Brendan Greeley. I'm the U.S. editor for FT Alphaville. This is Alpha Chat. There aren't a lot of people like Bill Janeway. He's an academic, but he's also a practicing capitalist. He got a Ph.D. in economics from Cambridge in the 1960s, but then he spent 40 years helping invent what we now call venture capital. He built the investment practice for IT at Warburg Pincus, where he's still a managing director and special advisor, but he's also back at Cambridge. He's an affiliate member of the economics faculty there. This year, he released the second edition of his book, Doing Capitalism in the Innovation Economy. He spoke with the FT's Jamie Powell about how government used to drive innovation and laid out what he calls a three-player game between government, capital, and industry. The, the concept of the three-player game evolved in my mind as a direct function of my experience in the trenches of venture capital, investing in software at the frontier. I had completed my doctorate in Cambridge on economic policy in the onset of the Great Depression. And so I brought some of that baggage, if you like, historical baggage with me. But it was in the, in the 1980s, it was 30 plus years ago, that I realized that I and my peers in the venture business in the US and the entrepreneurs we were backing in information technology were all dancing on a platform that had been constructed over a generation from the end of World War II by the federal government, specifically by the agencies of the United States Department of Defense, including, of course, the famous DARPA. Then, in the 1990s, I had, one might say, the privilege of participating in the great internet bubble, which both radically amplified and accelerated the digital revolution that we had been helping to build and, of course, generated transient wealth. I was in the unusually fortunate position of having seen the movie before, since my PhD thesis had been on 1929 to 1931. And in both editions of the book, you will find a chart of the share price of Radio Corporation of America the iconic new technology pioneer of the 1920s, mapped against the stock price profile of the two companies, the two really substantial software companies that I was deeply involved in helping to build and finance. And the profiles are almost exactly identical. So that gave me this idea that the interaction of a mission-driven state politically legitimized to make long-term investments without immediate concern for economic value, intersecting with a wave of financial speculation that for once, because usually it doesn't, for once focused on one of those technological revolutions that changed the world, that out of that came, had come over the last 200 years, a succession of new economies transforming markets and the conditions for competition and participation in markets. And then when I went back and looked historically, 
you could see the same pattern in the railway age, the railway manias of the 1830s and 40s, electrification from the turn of the 20th century through the 1920s, the same interaction of state-sponsored, fundamental, upstream invention on the one hand, and then this extraordinary amplification and acceleration thanks to speculators mobilizing capital at a scale that the rational, prudent investors of finance theory would never, never undertake. Fantastic. What, what our readers might be asking is, um, you had a first edition out five or six years ago. What gave you the impetus now to go back and revisit this three-player interaction? Well, there were three strategic motivations. The first kind of arose almost in a, a sort of parochial way as someone who'd spent 30 years investing in IT, in technology at the frontier under conditions of great uncertainty. One of the lessons I'd learned as I was instructed, uh, educated by a mentor all the way back to 1980, that was Fred Adler. Yeah. That was Fred Adler, extraordinary figure who uh, was a fantastic analyst of business operations and whose motto, whose mantra was corporate happiness is positive cash flow from operations. He actually had pillows made up with that embroidered, that mantra embroidered on them. And he used to throw them at the CEOs who he was backing. What that meant, it meant two things. One, it meant first that your customers were paying you more money in real cash than it cost to deliver them the service or the product that you were selling. It provided economic validation that what you were doing was worth doing. And second, it liberated the emerging new entrepreneurial business from dependence on the volatility of the financial markets. So I looked around as the world began to emerge from the crash of 2008, from the global financial crisis, and the Great Recession began to recede, and there was this new phenomenon, unicorns. Unicorns where that, that concept of positive cash flow was a kind of irrelevant barrier, you know, a kind of um, traffic barrier to limitless growth. It was irrelevant when you could sell what seemed to be an infinite amount of securities to finance limitless growth uh, rather than worry about how much cash flow you were actually generating from selling to customers. And then the second was the new cryptomania the cryptocurrency, Bitcoin blockchain phenomenon. And first of all, each of these phenomena kind of you know, challenged some of the messages from that first edition, but the crucial issue was that they represented something much bigger than that. They represented the fact that coming out of the global financial crisis, now 15 plus years from the great internet bubble, the digital revolution had taken on a life of its own. Not only was it no longer dependent on state support and subsidy, it was attacking the authority of the state at multiple levels, at multiple dimensions, not just the American state. It was attacking it on the one hand through having enabled this extraordinary second great globalization, 
even as the technologies of steamships and railways and the telegraph and the telephone had created the first globalization circa 1900. It had reduced the friction in which goods and services and people and money could move internationally, challenging, in fact, overwhelming the capacity of states to buffer their constituents from the consequences of the digital revolution they had sponsored. So it was that paradox, that, that contradiction, that really got me thinking. Absolutely. Um, and I guess we can kind of start off by talking about the unicorn phenomenon and um, the kind of cash flow burning business with, you know, I think one prevailing theme I've seen in the coverage of the unicorns and also, and there are a few public market equivalents, arguably, as well, is um, that there's been a discussion, especially in, in private markets, about, the, the you know, there's no need to go public anymore. The regulatory burden is too much. There's too much short-term focus from investors. And, you know, we don't want to be beholden to our quarterly results. Um, do you think there's any validity to that argument about now there seems to be some sort of a secondary market that's got some liquidity to it? Maybe not, as we saw with Uber last year and Benchmark and um, Mr. Kalinich selling their stakes, you know, it took a while, but there is some liquidity in the secondary market. So I was wondering how you think about, you know, whether the kind of IPOs are, you know, a thing of the past. Well, first, for the entrepreneurs and their early investors, the unicorn phenomenon, the unicorn bubble is the best of all imaginable worlds. Being able to raise limitless amounts of capital at prices that represent a premium valuation to roughly equivalent public companies with no oversight, with no governance, and the Wall Street Journal, I have to mention, I know it's the Financial Times, actually had a very interesting summary uh, survey of all of these unicorns where the founders have retained effective control even while raising billions of dollars. That's the best of all possible worlds. But two very different factors. One, the IPO market that we had come to be able to take for granted from the end of Volcker's crunch on inflation in 1981-82, right through the internet bubble to 2000, that IPO market had already gone away, even before the global financial yeah. crisis. This is where I've done my own contribution to academic scholarship. Back in the 80s and 90s, the number of venture-backed IPOs on a quarterly basis in the U.S. averaged around 30 per quarter. It's 120 a year. And it reached in the dot-com bubble, of course, much higher level. Since 2000, the IPO market in the U.S. has contracted substantially. The number of venture-backed IPOs, even abstracting from the years, the 18 months of the financial crisis, was no more than a quarter to a third of what it had been before. I think there's a completely independent institutional factor there that has usually been neglected by observers of this, analysts of this, and that is that the investment banking industry went through a massive contraction during the late 1990s. Five, six, seven banks came to dominate the market. The banks that had been, that had grown up, that had almost defined the ecosystem, the venture ecosystem, we called them the four horsemen in the 1980s and 90s, well, they were run by smart people. 
they all sold themselves to big banks at ludicrously, unsustainably high prices in 1998, 99, and 2000. And of course, when the bubble burst, the big banks closed them down. But they took away on-ramps to the public market. Now, that's one historical factor, an institutional factor. The other institutional factor, I entirely sympathize with anyone who is trying to think strategically, invest for the long term while being subject to public market pressures. Over the last generation, and there's now really good research on this, over the last generation, the institutionalization on both sides of the Atlantic of the stock market has risen to levels far higher than ever seen before. 70% or more of the money in the market is managed by people managing other people's money. That means that they are constrained by the possibility that their investors will take their money away if they don't at least do as well as the index. And of course, this goes with a larger and larger proportion of institutional money being, in fact, in index funds, paying very low fees, but constrained to follow the herd. So the, the momentum content of investing has risen very, very strongly and across the entire board, not just with respect to new tech companies. And then through one of the most perverse innovations where finance and economics cross, through the conveyor belt of equity-based compensation for executives, the short-termism of their stockholders translates into short-termism in their strategy and investment plans. And in fact, you can understand entirely why the incentives for executives to take free cash flow and not invest it upstream, but use it for stock buybacks and dividends should be the dominant, dominant factor that we see in the markets today. So all of that fits into a complex story about why the unicorns respond to institutional changes. But of course, there's one final fourth factor, which suggests that this may prove to be a transient phenomenon. What's been going, the last 10 years have been unprecedented in financial history in terms of where the real risk-free rate of interest has been sitting. Because this entire unicorn phenomenon is a function of institutional investors, public market investors, not venture capitalists, investors who do not want to sit on the board of directors, who do not want to challenge or even fire CEOs, reaching for return by buying risk far beyond what they have actually been compensated to pursue. So on the one hand, as real interest rates do indeed rise, and on the other hand, as of course is to be expected, a substantial proportion, no doubt well over half, of those companies deemed to be unicorns fail to deliver when it comes time to start paying their bills by selling more value to their customers than they have to pay to acquire. And that will be the end of the unicorn bubble. But no systemic consequences. So that the losses will be with the investors and the sovereign nations who are now invested in them. Yeah, so. and there will be. I mean, the way to think about it, in my view, is that there will be a set of entrepreneurs who will be constrained to learn that it's really hard 
to build a business that is self-sustaining because your customers really like what you're doing. That's one. And two, there'll be a set of fund managers who will be out of work. I guess on the the short-termism of the public markets point, um, do you think there's room to say that for CEOs who are very forthright with their vision, I'm thinking of Jeff Bezos having the same first page of every Amazon annual report since they IPO'd in 97, saying, we want to generate free cash flow, we're not interested in profits. And, you know, yes, they're cash flow positive, but you do put some emphasis on soft skills of CEOs in your book. Do you think there's room to say, if someone takes a company public, if they've got a, if they're saying, this is what we're going to do the next 10 years, back us or don't come with us, and they execute, there is room for that. Well, that, that last phrase, and they execute. Yeah. <laughs> so Amazon is a, is a most fascinating subject of scrutiny. First of all, Bezos imagined an extraordinary business and played a role in pushing the enabling factors to make that business happen. But first point, Amazon almost certainly would not exist had it not been founded at the onset of the great internet bubble. In that very good book, The Big Store, it is noted that in December 1999, Jeff Bezos finally hired a real CFO who convinced him over the next three months to go back to the market one more time. And at the end of March, Amazon issued a $650 million convertible debenture in Europe, largely purchased by German investors. For our listeners, that's a form of debt. Yeah, it's a debt converted into equity. So it carries a kind of equity premium, but when you borrow the money, you do have to give it back unless it converts into the equity because your share price goes up. But it was cash. It was delivered as cash to Amazon, delivered about two weeks before the peak of the stock market index, and that was March 17th, March April, 15th. April, 20, April 2000. And if that money hadn't been raised six months later, Amazon would almost certainly have been out of money. So on the other hand, what Bezos has done over these succeeding 18 years is really quite phenomenal because he's built an engine which has so many different levers for tweaking cash flow on a relatively short-term basis. Example, if he were to decide that the purchase price you had to pay in order to get free delivery had risen by 5%, a month later he'd be swimming in cash because he'd have reduced the free delivery. He just increased the cost of Prime membership by 20%. I don't know anybody who canceled. Now, that's anecdotal, but I think the the numbers will show that he had great pricing power. So he has the ability to manage cash flow. And now that it's 18 years of doing this and generating cash flow while investing in so aggressively and so intelligently that he's created not just a new business for Amazon, but a new category of business, the cloud computing services business, which is growing extraordinarily fast and represents a key element in this digital revolution breaking out as one might say electrification did when you didn't have to buy a generator and a motor yourself 
in order to be able to take advantage of electricity. You could just plug it into the wall. Yeah. So we're, we're moving on to talking about Amazon, and there's been a lot of um, consternation recently about middle America and um, kind of the retail collapse. We've seen a wave of bankruptcies, most notoriously recently Toys R Us, and there's a few others which are in trouble. And so it's clear that a lot of these large platform companies, whether it be Facebook, Google, Amazon, have huge amounts of market power. And before two or three years ago, it wasn't much of a problem. But we've seen recently with the Cambridge Analytica data scandal, the kind of scrutiny that can come on to these businesses. How do you see that playing out? And I'm specifically thinking about um, kind of Mm -hmm. Anglo-American governments here, because Europe is a bit more advanced than us on this. Do you see any real um, way forward here, which will end up with some action, you know, whether it be on the competition basis or on a kind of looking after the suppliers of their product uh, basis, who are the users? So it'd be great to have your thoughts a little bit about, you know, seeing as you've been a student of uh, markets, how you see kind of that, that power dynamic playing out. There are a number of different questions that are interwoven in in what you've just been saying. They're all important questions, and I'll try to parse them, if I may, one by one, rather than answer generically. Yeah. So one one question is about the impact of the disruptions generated in markets by the digital revolution, both directly in the form of Amazon on retail. Uber on local transportation, Airbnb on local accommodation. That's one set of questions. There, what is most evident in the U.S., and it's also fairly evident in Britain, after the transient interventions forced by the global financial crisis around the world, including Britain and the United States, the delegitimization of the state as an economic actor that we certainly can identify with Reagan in America and Thatcher in Britain has reasserted itself. And one of the key central issues, it seems to me, in defining the context for the 2016 electoral exercises in the United States and Britain was the recognition that government was failing its promise its implicit, fundamental promise of representative democracy that the state will buffer and cushion when the market goes bad, goes bad for individuals who have the vote. That's one aspect of it. I should add, we can see some signs of endogenous responses to the disruption that's taking place, and particularly in the labor market. So the algorithmic revolution in managing labor, the zero-hour contract at Starbucks, just like the Uber uncontract with its drivers, they offer the kind of promise for the extreme libertarians of the perfectly free labor market that they dreamed of. And of course, That labor market is what Marx called the reserve army of labor, callable on demand and payable at subsistence levels. One of the phenomena last year, one of the first signs of an endogenous response was when Walmart, 
whose vast number of employees being paid by Walmart nonetheless were on food stamps, were on food giveaways by the government because they were making so little money you couldn't feed a family. So effectively, Walmart was being subsidized by the state. Exactly right. Walmart found that their customer response to the appalling quality of their stores because their employees were completely disaffected, not cleaning up, not putting stuff on the shelves. Walmart actually raised the entry-level wage. Without government intervention, it was a response to the market. There's a myth, in a, a great myth in technological history that Henry Ford raised his workers' wages so they could buy the cars they were making. That's not why he did it. He did it because the turnover on the production line was something like 200%. Nobody who could, who had any choice at all could stand being on the production line for more than six months. So the labor market responses do include some uses of the new technology, and I think we're going to see more of this. Uber drivers in particular cities forming Facebook groups, setting up guilds, communicating with each other to construct a way of bargaining with Uber on a more collective basis. Again, not with government support endogenous to the market. Okay, shifting gears, there's a different phenomenon, and this one has come under scrutiny by some of the best young economists in the world. David Autor, with his team, Nick Bloom at Stanford, Cambridge graduate, I have to say, they have been studying what they call the superstar firms. That is the Amazons, Googles, Facebooks, reborn Microsoft, and seeing that their extraordinary profitability, in the case of Amazon, it's not reported profitability, but their market power is such that you can actually read their impact on the aggregate statistics on income inequality. Their employees are paid, despite those Amazon warehouses, are paid at rates that show up in the national aggregate statistics. And on the other hand, it goes with another phenomenon, radical concentration, major increase in the concentration of industries, the share of total sales, the total revenues represented by the top four firms across manufacturing, across services. This has increased very substantially. It's not a sign of a dynamic, broad economic growth. I was going to ask you about that. As you yeah. know, a business formation, I think, it is a very low level at the moment in America, and it's maybe actually because... declined below the number of business failures on an annual basis for the last few years. I don't think that's been seen in since World War II. So, what what do you see as a kind of uh, potential pathway out? Then, is there any kind of real solutions which you see as? Because I, I think it's one of those things where. You're looking for, you know, we have euphoria in the markets, but do we see euphoria, you know, on the high street, as we'd say in the UK? Well, obviously, um, my book, my work, and anyone who's operating in these markets and the sectors in which I've been operating has to be enormously sensitive to political factors. The purpose of my work, my book, my writing, my talking is not to establish a political case. Sure. It's analytical. It is the case, analytically, that the U.S. government, before the 2016 presidential election, was already effectively paralyzed. There was, has been one 
relevant initiative, one directly responsive initiative to the digital revolution. Of course, it was the Affordable Care Act. It was the act that took a step, not a giant step, but a measurable, meaningful step towards decoupling the unique linkage in America of healthcare, access to healthcare, healthcare insurance, to employment. And of course, it triggered the wave, the rabid wave of outrage that led to the Republican majorities in Congress, the freeze of any other initiatives of the Obama administration, and may well be taken as being the kind of forerunner of the presidential campaign in 2016. I think we're stuck for a time. We're going to have, I mean, one of the good things is that the political process does still function, if not with any degree of efficiency and minimal effectiveness. But you can see examples. But one that reflects our federal system in the U.S., where the famous uh, Justice Brandeis said that uh, the, the states were the laboratories of democracy. In the reddest of red states, we've seen teachers without any external pressure, self-motivated, going on strike, telling their state legislatures that the reduction, the austere reduction in funding of public education had, re had just gone too far. And actually, in, in at least two of those states, producing a positive reaction with the legislatures, actually Republican legislatures, raising taxes, increasing teachers' pay, and providing more money to the schools. So there are, if you pardon the expression, some political green shoots out there, yeah. but they're not that many, and they're pretty small cool. and fragile. I'd like to take it back a bit um, away from the kind of you know, we could talk forever about what's going on in Western politics, but um, be good to go back to some of the, your academic work, um, particularly on bubbles. Now, there's yeah. a phrase in your book, bubbles are banal, which uh, struck me both times when I read both editions. So what do you mean by that? What I mean is that wherever there are markets and assets, wherever markets and assets observe, there you will observe a bubble. That is speculative financial investing momentum hurting behavior from tulip bulbs in 1630 in Amsterdam to the shares of the South Sea Company in London in 1721 and on and on and on again. Books have been written, Kindleberger to Rogoff, of how these financial manias are observable under almost any conditions and the asset that is the target ranges across an enormous, an enormous spectrum. You know, if we're talking about bubbles, you know, it'd be remiss of me not to mention, you know, the movement in Bitcoin over Christmas yeah. and back down again. I mean, right. what, what do you think about what it's very early days? What do you think is going on in the kind of blockchain and cryptocurrency space? OK, let's take, a, let's, let's take a siding here. Um, As an example. I think I am one of those, and I'm not by any means alone in this, in thinking that it begins, that the first step is to take, is to separate out the innovative technological infrastructure, not as innovative as its sponsors would tell you, distributed ledgers, replicating data, been used by the United States Navy to, so that each ship knows where every other ship has is for, for a long time. But the infrastructure separated from the applications that run on the infrastructure, just as with railroads, just as with electricity grids, so with the internet, and now with the blockchain. The second thing is 
the distributed ledger technology, which is the technical phrase for blockchain, is very immature. The blockchain for Bitcoin is actually pathetic with respect to its performance. And when you think about it, it's not surprising that if every participant has to do real work to record a transaction, and then it has to carry around the chain of all the transactions to get to the next one, that's going to take time. And time means latency, slowness, poor performance. And energy as yeah. well. And great energy, absolutely. Um, I think of this as, as, as if kind of Marley's ghost were riding on an automobile, dragging the chain behind that was burning fuel at three miles to the gallon. Okay. Right. <laughs> then you come to the applications. Now, again, I am not a true believer. I am a keen skeptic of the notion of cryptocurrencies as alternative monies. As I say, I read them as just one of many elements in which digital technologies are being mobilized to attack the authority of the state. In this case, not with a lot of success. But I think there will be use cases found as this new economic space is explored. It took 50 years from the first railways to mail order retail, which was the killer app of the railway age. It's going to take years. It does appear, if you were betting right now, I would bet that the most significant applications riding on this infrastructure will actually be between very large institutions that are very regulated, that know each other extremely well, and are gaining an economic benefit of some manner from increased efficiency or reliability of the infrastructure. The exact opposite of the initial vision of the libertarian authors of the blockchain Bitcoin phenomenon. I mean, the libertarian element in general in tech at the moment is very interesting to me because it seems to me from reading your book that the early days of Silicon Valley was on a really strong partnership between government and the private sector, and then the finances backing it. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about you know your experience when you were at both at Eberstadt and Wilbur Pincus, and how you saw the kind of the change to where we've arrived now, where we have you know Mark Zuckerberg seeming unwilling to go in front of UK Parliament, right. you know, and we have this kind of discord, antagonistic yeah. relationship yeah. between big tech and the government when it when it used to be kind of symbiotic. Right. Certainly, the, the first 30 years, and really up until about 1980. So I came into the game about 1971-2 and realized the game I was in just about 1980. Let me back up for one second. The role of the government was not just funding research. It was also as the first creative, collaborative customer for the new technologies the first microprocessors came out of Texas Instruments and Intel. The U.S. Air Force was a very early customer for microprocessors when they were so unreliable, the production process was so fragile that you were getting you know, one or two devices out of 100, maybe even 1,000 that actually really worked. But the Air Force didn't care about the cost. It needed them for the guidance system of the Minuteman missile. The entire virtual reality phenomenon of application of digital technologies can be traced back to the United States Navy wanting to develop a computer-driven flight simulator where the computers were 
swift and powerful enough to operate in real time. There's one last historical point. Between 1982 and 1983, there was a turning point at the deep level of technological evolution and of market evolution between the nascent digital revolution and the government. The military government for technology began to become small and highly specialized relative to the new emerging, exploding commercial market, which was, of course, led by the PC, by the personal computer. And companies like Intel, which had grown up directly supported by U.S. government and defense, turned away from their programs. And there were two specific instances that, that, that demonstrate this. DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, had another one of its episodic competitions for the next generation of high-speed microprocessor, high-speed core computer chip. How long have these been running for, these competitions? Going back to 1960, 1959, 1960. But the military requirements were just for outright performance, not performance relative to cost. Mm -hmm. Intel was dedicated to winning the war to be the standard chip inside, Intel inside, the PCs of the world. So it refused to participate in that competition. And on the other hand, the Defense Department, which had sponsored the first general-purpose com commercial language called COBOL, which became universal when IBM ran the world on mainframes, sponsored a new language, which in a way one can feel frustrated by. The new language was called ADA. It was named for the Countess of Lovelace, mm. Babbage's, Charles Babbage's brilliant partner, usually recognized as the first computer programmer in the history of the world. And ADA went nowhere as a new language. It was completely sub superseded by languages that emerged from university research and Bell Labs research sponsored by the government. But it was another demonstration that the government had become a secondary factor in the evolution of the industry. So do you do you see now this kind of, um, I guess what we call this kind of anti-government streak kind of originating from that split in the 80s? Where do you see this coming from? I think it's much more general. I think it can be traced back you know, there was a famous incident, well, maybe it's not so famous, but I remember reading it and never forgot it, in the progressive era in the U.S., in the early 20th century, when Teddy Roosevelt and then Woodrow Wilson were leading progressive reforms in response to the excesses of the Second Industrial Revolution and the Gilded Age in the context of the first populist rebellion in America. And there were congressional hearings and um, a coal baron, an enormously wealthy man was called before Congress to testify and was challenged as uh, his people in the mines had, had called out the militia to shoot the strikers. And he was challenged by progressive politicians. And his response was when asked how he had the right to play the role he was playing. And his answer was, God gave me my coal mines. So the notion that uber-successful, and I use that term with a smile, Easily. yeah, highly successful entrepreneurs who have made tons of money tend to attribute their success to their own unique talents, occasionally reinforced by the blessings of a benevolent deity. 
when, when, when Barack Obama said, in the context of just what we're talking about, he said, you didn't build that. He meant exactly what I said when I realized I was dancing on a platform constructed by the United States government. Of course, he was assaulted. But I, do want to leave, I don't want to leave one misimpression. The attitude represented by the extreme Silicon Valley, anarcho-libertarian, in pursuit of perpetual life, it is a caricature, and it's by no means u- universal. Yeah. So um, I think it'd be good to kind of um, finish off talking about um, another subject very dear to your heart, which is economics. You know, it feels like economists have become a bit of a punch bag here in the UK. Anytime an economist says something, you hear back, well, you didn't spot the financial crisis. How do you feel about how economics has evolved um, in the last 10 to 15 years, seeing as you're right, you're back at Cambridge now and you're in the heart of the the department there? Well, you know, I, I speak as someone who I sometimes explain my professional life as having taken a 35-year sabbatical from the academy to learn what it was to be and then to act as a venture capitalist. And I returned, not entirely by accident, in time for the global financial crisis for 2008, which indeed mainstream macroeconomic theory was radically unequipped to anticipate or explain. And maybe even contributed to, one could argue. One, as I do in my book. (laughs) I I think of 2008 as the gift that keeps on giving to the academic disciplines of economics and finance. First, at the most strategic level, economics and finance, once upon a time, were one subject. Of course, what went on in financial markets influenced decisions in the real economy of employment, investment, consumption, saving, and vice versa. They separated somewhere in the 1970s, economics began to assume that markets could be examined with money just treated as a veil. That is, money, as I learned at Cambridge under the students of John Maynard Keynes, money, in fact, is an asset. It could be held as a way of not having to make a decision, as self-insurance against an uncertain future. Both at the corporate and the national level. At the individual level, at the firm level, at the national level. It's not an accident that China, after the Asian crisis of the late 1990s, decided to hold $3 trillion in reserves. Or that Jamie Dimon set about building a fortress balance sheet in 2006-07 in order to protect J.P. Morgan against the fragility of the financial system that J.P. Morgan had played a major role in creating. So first, since 2008, at the micro level of firm-to-firms, individuals and markets, at the kind of meso level of looking at different sectors, and at the macro level, finance and economics are coming back together. One of the most promising developments are a new kind of financial macroeconomics in which intermediaries, banks, are at the core. And it's, it's not just one place. Um, at Princeton and Stanford, Marcus Brunemar and Yuli Sanikov. Here at LSE, Helene Ray. At MIT, Ricardo Caballero. They're doing pioneering work of constructing a macroeconomics where what happens in the financial system is central to the performance of the economy as a whole. And then at the other extreme, at the micro level, the caricature of the rational, all-knowing, optimizing automaton 
has been displaced. And this wasn't apparent, but when it came time to really reflect and to build new thinking out of the crash of 2008, there was available from behavioral economics, from network theory, a whole reservoir of empirical and theoretical work to construct much more complex models of agents interacting in markets who are different along multiple dimensions, what they know, what they own, what they fear. These are models that are much more complicated, but radically more realistic. I actually think it's likely to push economists to follow the natural scientists more and more towards simulation methodologies in order to explore the behavior of complex systems of this sort. So this is, this is an extremely positive development. It's not going to change policy in the next five years or even the next decade. It's the kind of contextual change that took place from World War II to 1980 that enabled Reagan and Thatcher, the economics that said markets are self-correcting, they will deliver the efficient and definitionally fair outcome for all who participate. It took 30 years to construct that false image, that false framework, which blew up in 2008. I'm afraid it will take another generation to see the outcome of this really creative and important new work that is going on right now. Cool. Well, Bill, thanks for coming. Appreciate the opportunity, Jamie. That was Alpha Chat, produced and edited by Amy Keene and Eric Krupke, with recording help from Andrew Georgiatis. 